last week on the Triple Point Podcast. And I see Dallas here, and I think how much Dallas has sprawled, how much pavement there is, how much construction and environment change there is to just the surface, right? And I think, okay, even if it's raining more, there was already a problem because there's so much pavement. That's problem one. Okay, now let's say it is raining more or this is an extreme event. Well, heck yeah, it's going to be really bad, right? Because we didn't properly mitigate for the environmental factors. The thing that people want to focus on when it comes to climate change is the rain falling or the hot temperatures, stronger tropical cyclones. The thing that a lot of people don't think about, though, is the human impact on the built environment. So when I got out of the Air Force and it came over to the National Weather Service, I began hearing about this role that you could be a meteorologist in the weather service, but then you could deploy out and support the firefighters out in the field. And it wasn't like a deployment, like in the military where you're gone for months and months or potentially, you know, a year at a time. You're in the incident management team. You're working with the fire chiefs and uh, different levels of leadership and trying to give them weather information that is, is directly impacting their tactics and directly impacting the strategy as to how they fight the fire. Ultimately, the main reason why we're there is for the firefighter safety and also for public safety. In the fire community, they're very, very aware the importance of what weather is to their safety and to their operations. So if an IMET were to come to the leadership of the fire team and say, I need more bandwidth, usually they would get more bandwidth ASAP. They would bring multiple satellite dishes to boost the amount of bandwidth, or sometimes they would actually give us a dedicated line. So the IMET, the incident meteorologist and the fire behavior analyst, basically we work side by side the entire incident because he's the firefighting expert. I'm the weather expert, and we collaborate as a team to give our information out to the field, right? So I give the weather information, and then he takes the weather information and says, this fire is going to go here, or it's going to go there, and it's going to move this fast, and you have this many hours until it reaches this location. This is an important distinction for your listeners. So there's what we call a fire behavior triangle. And this fire behavior triangle has three sides to it. You have the weather, you have the topography, and then you have the fuels or the vegetation. And so the potential that we saw that afternoon, when as we're looking at it, we saw this potential of, holy crap, everything is coming together for this fire to burn all the way down into Reading, like today. Originally, when I first got there and I got briefed in, the original thinking was that, oh, it, you know, it might get to Reading in a few days. But then we started looking at it and it's like, this is going to Reading tonight. The fire ended up coming down into Reading, but not only did it come down into Reading, but it actually formed a fire tornado. And I say fire tornado because it, it really was a tornado. We went back and we did a storm survey after the fire had gone through, and we found that the fire tornado had a half mile wide path. It was two miles long and half mile wide. I mean, it was ridiculous how big this fire tornado was. 
Welcome to the Triple Point Podcast, a podcast for those working at the intersection of weather and climate, technology and society. We focus on innovators and leaders working to make our communities safe and resilient in the face of a dynamic and ever-changing world. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff Cunningham. And I am Ryan Harris, and welcome to the conclusion of our interview with Alex Hoon from NV Energy. We catch up as he transitions from his time as an incident meteorologist with the National Weather Service to using weather intelligence in his current role to minimize and mitigate wildfire threats to the energy grid in Nevada. Hope you enjoy part two of Weather in the Line of Fire. So how does one go from working with the National Weather Service and doing some really awesome things, you know, working on these fires? How did this transition happen as you moved over to NV Energy? Walk us through that and tell us a little bit about NV Energy and what you're doing there. I loved doing what I was doing with the incident meteorology, but you know, this opportunity with MV Energy came along and saw this opportunity as like, okay, well now I can go do something that I really enjoy doing, fire weather, but then have a little bit more of a stable schedule that I can work mostly day shifts. I do work some evenings and I do work some weekends whenever the weather is crazy, but the vast majority of my days are, you know, Monday through Friday. Whenever this opportunity came, I was actually very aware of a bunch of the utilities in California already building up their meteorology programs. I'm sure that you've seen on the news and different articles about the power companies in California and some of the big wildfires that have been caused or allegedly caused by some of the power companies. And, uh, you know, they're being found liable that they weren't doing enough to lower the risk of wildfires. And so I believe it's 2018, the state of Nevada the state Senate actually passed a Senate bill that created this natural disaster protection for NV Energy. Actually, NV Energy technically supported the bill because NV Energy wanted to do this, but they needed to have a way to be able to fund this program to reduce the fire risk, right? And so because of the highly regulated nature of power companies, it has to go through the Public Utilities Commission. It has to go through the public sector. Basically, it goes through the state government. Anytime the power company wants to spend money and be able to charge that back to the customers. And so that's why MV Energy supported that bill. And they ended up passing the bill in 2018 and created what is now known as the Natural Disaster Protection Department for MV Energy. And so, like I said, the California utilities had already started doing this in response to some of their large destructive wildfires that they've had. So they began bringing on meteorologists and fire experts to be able to lower the risk of potential wildfires from the power grid, from the utility infrastructure. And so MB Energy began working on it in this program in 2019. And it's been incredible to see how much work has actually been done in the state of Nevada through this program. It's a very unique program because MV Energy, we don't want to have our own fire department. So we have all of these existing fire departments around the state. And so we've actually contracted with existing fire districts. We've actually given millions and millions of dollars to these fire districts for them to be able to staff up. So we're not taking firefighters out of the fire station. We're actually adding to the amount of firefighters at each one of these districts. And then 
they actually have a full-time job year-round, so they're not a seasonal firefighter. They're year-round employees, and they're employed by the local fire district, but they are contracted by MV Energy, so they actually go out and do fuels reduction, and they're actually lowering the fire risk underneath our power line infrastructure. And so they're going out and they're doing these huge projects of removing the fuel because like I was telling you guys earlier, the fire, when you start looking at fire behavior and fire science, the fuel arrangement is a huge part of what causes fires when you get that ignition and how the fire grows. And so if you remove the fuel and you get a spark, the chances of you getting a large devastating wildfire is very, very small. So by removing that fuel, you're actually lowering the fire risk before the weather event comes. And then on the meteorology side, as a last resort, if it's an extreme wind event and we have extreme fire danger, then we can actually preemptively shut down the power. You guys may have heard of a lot of that is happening in California, where they're actually turning off the power during these extreme wind events to lower the fire risk. And we do that here in Nevada as well. It's very surgical. We're not shutting down the power to like 50,000 people. We're shutting down the power in specific areas where the wind and the fuels and all of the potential fire behavior is going to be the most extreme. So Alex, I promised I wouldn't throw any curveballs, but I'm going to throw a slight curveball. So California seems to get a lot of attention. Not often very good. I don't hear as many bad things about Nevada. What are you doing differently than California? Or is it just sheer luck? So that's the only curveball I'll throw you. (laughs) There, we, we definitely have our fires, right? Like we have our fires most recently last year, there was two wildfires that actually came right into Nevada, like the Caldor fire and the Tamarack fire. We do get large, devastating wildfires here in Nevada, but it is a little bit different animal. Like California, you have these huge areas of very dry forest that is very prone to having large, devastating wildfire. And then you have millions of people that live there. And the population of California, I I think I want to say that I saw recently, they're almost up to 40 million people in California. And I think Nevada has like four. <laughs> we have we have four million people compared to their forty million people. Well, a lot of these fires are maybe not worse than they were fifty years ago or a hundred years ago, but they're relatively worse because there's more people there. Is that kind of what you've seen in your fire incidents that you responded to? So, in general, wildfire fire behavior is hugely impacted by human interactions in the forest, you know, whether it's uh, the way that they've been deforesting, actually like clear-cutting forests or the way that they do forest management, or also the encroachment of the population into the wildland urban interface. That So like, yeah, a whole different ballgame. So I agree with the point that there's a lot of people that have moved into these wildland urban interfaces, basically where people that traditionally they live down in the valley, San Francisco, LA, Sacramento. These are big cities, big urbanized areas, but you don't see major wildfires in those cities because 
they're typically deforested and or not deforested, but they don't have a lot of big heavy fuels to be able to have these devastating wildfires. But when people move out of the cities and they move up into the hills and they move up into the mountains and they move up to the Lake Tahoe's and the Paradise and these areas where, yeah, they're beautiful, very beautiful places, but the fire danger is extreme. And so the fact that these fires are getting bigger and more extreme also, and that goes directly into climate change as well, because the climate where a lot of these forests, you got to think about these trees, these trees are like, you know, 200, 300 years old, a lot of them, right? And you got to think about the climate 100, 200, 300 years ago was much wetter and cooler than it is today. And so the trees, they're really not used to this type of heat and the Mm -hmm. long-term droughts, these mega droughts that are happening. There's just widespread die-off in these forests. The, The trees cannot sustain themselves with this type of the warmer temperatures, the lack of snowpack, right? The snowpack that we typically have in the Sierra, warmer temperatures leads to less snowpack, less runoff less water in the soil for these plants. It's all connected. And so we are seeing more extreme fires than there were 100 years ago just because of the extremity of the droughts and climate change. So, Alex, I I hear two, I don't know if they're competing, but two possible contributing factors to, to the wildfires out west. One is fire management, like not letting smaller fires burn some of the understory, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there are a couple of climate articles out there in science journals about vapor pressure deficit. Yep. I think that goes to the drier atmosphere right. part that you're talking about. Do you know enough to talk to either one of those? Yeah. You know, I would contend that there's three major issues of why we're seeing these more destructive, deadly wildfires. The encroachment of people into the wildland, more and more people, you know, Back to the California example, I believe that out of that 40 million people, a full 25% live in wildland urban interface. So that is 10 million people in California that live in places where there is a fire occurrence or where fire is normal. And then you have the climate change where temperatures are warmer. It's affecting the amount of moisture that's in the ground. So vapor pressure deficit, that is showing the lack of moisture that's actually in the air. And like I was saying earlier about the fire behavior, typically the plants actually respond, living plants and dead plants on the ground can respond to the amount of moisture and humidity that's in the air. And when you have climate change, it's not just the daytime temperatures that are warmer, it's the nighttime temperatures that are warmer. And in fact, I would actually contend that it's the warmer temperatures at night that are creating the drier conditions and the fuels, which are leading to more rapid fire spread, larger fire spread. It's more difficult to contain these fires. So you have those two things. And then you have the fire management side, which you touched on. The fire management side is a big thing. This is a huge thing because what do you do? This is a hard, hard question to answer. And uh, I don't think we're going to find the answer here on this podcast. But the thing is like, you know, okay, you have 10 million people in California that live in the forest. 10 million people, 
And now these fires just used to burn on themselves and burn themselves out and like clean up the forest, clean up all of the underbrush and the understories. But the thing is, because we've been putting out fires for the last hundred years, there's an overgrowth of vegetation that is not naturally there because fire does need to be on the landscape. Fire is actually a good thing for the environment. Fire is a good thing for the forests. It renews the forest. It takes out all of the smaller brush and the smaller trees, and it typically leaves the bigger trees for hundreds of years, right? But if we stop every single wildfire and we don't allow those wildfires to grow to their full potential, then you have this abundance of fuels. And that's what we're seeing today. We're seeing this perfect storm. And that's why we're seeing these big, massive wildfires that are, instead of 10,000 acres, they're hundreds of thousands of acres or a million acres. Like we had a couple of million acre fires in the last few years in California. And so it's not an easy question to solve for sure. So we have three prongs. So we've got the encroachment of folks, people, lots of them. <laughs> some climate change in there, some forest management. What about ignitions, right? I mean, now that you also have more people in the forest, you have more potential ignition sources. Exactly. So you've got the people side of that. Is there a climate increase in ignitions? Like, is there more lightning? So the, the lightning is, uh, there's an article out there that was saying that with warmer temperatures, you have drier boundary layers and that the thunderstorms are producing less precipitation and actually leading to more ignitions. There was a paper that came out not too long ago. You'll have to go look it up. Um, but uh, I believe that's what they were pushing. That's what they were. their research was looking at was dry lightning was a more common occurrence now than it was in the past. That being said, the human cause definitely higher just because you have more people in the forest more people recreating in the forest. You have more power lines in the forest. Some of the power lines were put in 60, 70, 80 years ago or more. And you think about like, you know, when's the last time those power lines were replaced? When's the last time those power lines were upgraded? So that's a big part of our program and the energy is not just reducing the fuels underneath the power lines, but literally upgrading the power lines that are existing because replacing old poles, replacing the fuses instead of the old style fuses, replacing them with modern fuses that don't explode shards of metal in 20 different directions. There's a lot of things that are being upgraded. So power lines are exposed, right? It's usually it's either a copper wire or an aluminum wire with steel, reinforced with steel. Typically they are exposed. So if a tree branch falls onto one of those power lines, it can cause a shower of sparks, right? Well, what we're doing at MB Energy and other utilities across the West is actually going through these extreme fire areas and replacing that exposed conductor and replacing it with covered conductor. It's like a PVC or plastic coating over the power lines. And so like if a tree branch were to come down onto the power line, the tree branch would just hit it and bounce off no sparks, no nothing, and drive on, right? So it really lowers the fire risk quite a bit. So Jeff, going back to your original question, I think it's both of those things. I want to talk a little bit about the energy trading too, how weather plays into that. Maybe you can knock both of these birds with one stone. 
I want you to talk about, from a technology perspective, how you're working with other energy companies uh, and their meteorologists to partner and provide, I don't want to say hyper-local weather information, but essentially create your own or use your own model for very specific energy purposes. And maybe as part of your response to that, I think you and I chatted about this before, but what a single thunderstorm can do to wreak havoc on a day of energy trading, say in Las Vegas. Right, right. So we are working with Pacific Core. Pacific Core is a power company up in Oregon, Northern California, Utah. They actually are a sister company for NV Energy that we're all underneath the parent company of Berkshire Hathaway Energy. And so Pacific Core, they've actually brought online, I want to say it's like three HPCCs, the high-performing computing clusters. They actually run a two-kilometer wharf that covers a vast majority of the Western U.S. At MB Energy, we get to take part in that as well and be able to use the weather modeling as one of our tools that we use. We use the regular FER and NAM and GFS and European, the GFS ensembles, EC ensembles, like we use all that stuff as well. But that two kilometer wharf goes out to five days. And we're actually able to use that to look at very, very specific, very small scale weather patterns, mesoscale, and to look out five days ahead of time. Mainly we're using that on the fire mitigation side of the house. But there's also this other side of the energy company, which is like what you were saying with the energy trading. So whenever we have energy and uh, gosh, like, man, we could do a whole nother podcast. So energy trading, it happens all the time. Power companies, when you're generating power, these power companies are generating tons of power, like megawatts of power. And it has to be used because there's no way to store it. They're working on that. Someday, I think that there will be some kind of storage capacity to be able to have batteries that are large enough and have capacity enough to be able to power a city overnight. But as of right now, like it's very, very minimal and it's just in like testing phases. So when energy is created, it has to be used. Say, for instance, like the state of Nevada, like we have enough capability to produce energy most of the year. But during the summertime, during our peak load, when Las Vegas is 110 degrees, 115 degrees, whatever, it's super hot in Las Vegas and everybody's got their air conditioning on, you know, all of the casinos have their air conditionings on. It creates a huge load and actually NV Energy, we literally have to bring in power from out of state to be able to keep the lights on. These different power companies are actually buying and selling energy back and forth from each other. And so to go back to that example of a thunderstorm, let's say it's one of those hot days where it's 115 degrees and MV Energy goes out, you know, they buy a whole bunch of power and it could be hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, right, to buy that energy. And then a thunderstorm pops up, dumps a whole bunch of rain over the Las Vegas metro area. And, and then, you know, the power consumption, instead of having this huge power load, 
now you've just dropped the temperature down into the 70s and everybody's uh, air conditioner almost simultaneously turns off. And so like now you have no load, but you still bought all this power. So that can create a situation where you can get stuck with this energy that you purchased, but you're not able to sell it back. You you So it's very important for power companies to be able to predict this weather at a very, very small scale, you know? That's fascinating to me to think about how many millions of dollars, not just millions of dollars, but the actual resources that go into creating this energy, how weather can affect that too. It's just amazing to me. I was going to say, what are the Nevada sources of power? So we, like everyone else, we're becoming more and more sustainable. We're looking for sustainable energy, renewable energy. I want to say that as of right now, we're somewhere on the order of like 30% of solar power. And we have geothermal plants here in Nevada as well. And then probably the, the biggest source of power that we have is actually natural gas turbine generators. They heat up water and it, it works like a steam engine turbine, right? But using the natural gas to, to heat it up. But natural gas, even though it is cleaner burning than like a coal power plant, it still is a fossil fuel. The company has definitely made lots of investments expanding the renewable energy side of the house, trying to get our solar energy up. I believe the goal is to be up to like 50% of capacity by the year 2030. So that's the goal. Don't quote me on that, but I think that's pretty close. We're getting there, you know, and there's a lot of opportunity in the state of Nevada. It's literally like the sunniest, driest state in the union, right? I mean, we have 300 plus days of sunshine every year. And we have to be able to harness that solar energy, be able to use it and maximize it. And if we do it intelligently, we literally could produce enough energy to sell to other states because we have so much sun. We can actually produce energy and sell it back to California. When it's sunny in Nevada and it's cloudy in California, we can actually sell power back to them. Or we can sell it to Utah or Oregon or Arizona. So question for you. All right. So a couple of episodes ago, we ran across a couple of news articles that said renewable energy is part of the reason why we have these rolling blackouts in Texas or whatever. I don't know. There's different places because it takes a while to spin up, you know, or we've gotten rid of some of our natural gas plants. What can you say about that? So I'm not an electrical engineer here, a little bit outside of my expertise, but essentially when you have renewable energy, when the wind is blowing, yeah, your wind turbines are going to produce energy. When the sun is shining, yeah, you're going to get energy. But as soon as that sun goes down, you're not producing energy. As soon as that wind dies off, you're not producing energy. So you still have to have an underlying source of power that can keep those electrons moving through the system and keep people's lights on and their computers and their TVs so that they can watch Netflix and their Tesla when they come home at night and they want to plug in their Tesla. We got to keep those electrons moving. A lot of these power companies, they can't go 100% renewable, not yet at least, because we just don't have that technology is not quite there yet. 
that's why you see that we still have natural gas turbine generators that those power plants can produce that underlying baseline energy to keep the electrons moving. And then when the sun comes up, you can ramp those generators down into like an idle, right? They can idle for a while. And then the solar energy keeps those electrons moving during the day. Or in the Great Plains, they have these huge you know, wind turbines. Those wind turbines will continue, as long as the wind is blowing, continue moving those electrons down the line. But bottom line is like, if you have too much on the renewable side, and you don't have enough baseline power generation, then you're going to end up having a loss of power at some point. Do you guys try to predict that through the services that you guys provide? So my job particularly is on the fire mitigation side. That's kind of like my wheelhouse. I would venture to say that at some point that these gas traders, the energy traders, they are using weather to help them make those decisions. And they are using the weather predictions to be able to see like, what is the predicted load? Like the Las Vegas example. Yeah. The Las Vegas example, they looked at a weather forecast. The weather forecast said it was 115 degrees. They looked at load charts that said, hey, at 115 degrees, this is how much load you're going to have throughout the day. Whenever you have the peak heating and everybody's turning on their air conditioning, and basically because Envy Energy and any other regulated industry, you know, has to, we are required to keep the lights on. I don't know if you guys knew that. As a regulated power company, we are required to keep the power on. If the power goes out, then there's actually repercussions that come down from, from the, the state down to the power company. You have to pay fines and all that stuff. It's, it's very costly. Texas is a little bit different because it's not regulated anymore. They removed the regulatory aspect from Texas. So like, you know, you have more power companies, but they're not held to the same regulatory standards as say here in Nevada or California or other states here in the West. Well, I think that's one of the challenges that they ran into when they had that cold snap last year is when you have cold and overcast conditions and icy weather. You get those wind turbines freezing up. You get even the, the fossil fuel lines from natural gas, even though some of those, you know, froze over a little bit. And then the challenges specifically, it sounded like why Texas ran into that is because of that, whether that's for the lack of regulation or the lack of hooks that they have with surrounding states, unlike Nevada and California and other states out West, Texas is kind of on their own. Yeah, energy independent. Exactly. Yeah. So. Before we close here, I, I guess one of the things that is interesting to me in this whole discussion about, particularly when we look about the Inflation Reduction Act, the big push to renewables, you mentioned to charge someone's Tesla, you know, yeah, they, they're getting an EV. It still requires some form of electricity. And in states like Nevada or in Florida or anywhere else that gets a heavy amount of sunshine, yeah, solar is probably going to be able to power a lot of your needs, but the entire U.S. is not as lucky as some of these states that have an abundance of solar energy. And so, yes, we are going to move more towards renewables, but if, if that is increasing the power load because now we're using more electricity, 
that's somewhat of a negative offset. So at the end of the day, the point that I was really driving at here is that it really comes down to values. And are we going to, as a society, continue to utilize energy the same way that we have with, I would say, just reckless abandon? Or are we going to do better about conserving energy, turning off the lights, not air conditioning, empty buildings and those kind of things? I guess Jeff called me preachy in a previous episode, so maybe I'm getting on my preachy soapbox again here at the those, end. So those are those are good questions, Ryan. Like the you we know, need ideally, NB, we need NB energy to, to 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 figure this out for us, Alex. In an ideal world, I think that we would be more conservative with our power usage. Everybody turns up their air conditioning up to like 80 degrees during the day, you know, like so it doesn't. It's not cooling down your house like when nobody's there. People are being more cognitive to turn off the lights or replacing their lights with LED light bulbs instead of incandescent light bulbs. You know, I, ideally that is the goal, right? But I think the reality is that as we become more and more technology heavy in our society, we're just going to keep using more and more electricity. And that power is going to have to come from somewhere, right? And, you know, as people buy more and more electric vehicles, they're going to be using more power, more electricity. So where is it going to come from? We're making that push towards, you know, more renewable energy sources. But I, I think that the energy consumption is only going to continue to grow into the future. Population continues to grow. More and more people have technology. More and more people are getting bigger houses. You know, like 50 years ago, the average house was three bedrooms and 1,200 square feet, right? Now, you know, your average house is four bedrooms or five bedrooms and 2,500 square feet. That takes more energy to heat and cool. And yeah, I don't know. That's a deep conversation, Ryan. <laughs> That's for maybe another show. So before we let you go, we like to ask our guests three questions in a lightning round. So Jeff's going to kick us off with the first question. What is the most memorable weather event in your life? <laughs> uh, my most memorable weather event. Uh, when I was a kid, I was about 12 years old. I was on a Boy Scout camp and uh, we were out on this Boy Scout camp and we heard tornado sirens and you know, everybody started running. And, you know, I'm just a little kid. I'm, you know, didn't really know what, what the heck was going on. And I remember looking across that field and I grew up in Texas, right? So tornado country. We looked across that field and we were hunkered down in a ditch and I saw this massive wedge tornado that was just moving across and I was like fascinated. I, I still, I, I can see it in my mind's eye right now, like just incredible. And this tornado just left an imprint on me and I remember that's what got me into weather and that's why I've been fascinated with weather ever since that changed me. So luckily n nobody got hurt. Nothing got destroyed. It ended up being like a EF3 tornado moving across the west side of Houston. It's amazing. I think every meteorologist has a story like that that got them into weather. So, all right, the next question we got for you, beaches or mountains? Uh, I'm a mountain guy. When I uh, grew up in Texas in the flatlands, and then I moved out west, and I fell in love with the mountains, and hunting and hiking and camping and backpacking and man 
I, I tell you, being being in the mountains is my uh, my happy place. I think that's three for mountains, Jeff. Awesome. Three for mountains and zero for beaches. Yeah. What's your superpower? And my superpower, my favorite superpower, I, I think I would love to fly. I, I think if I could fly just like Superman or whatever, that would be, that'd be my, my superpower. <laughs> All right. That's awesome, man. I gotta, I, I want to go see the weather, right? Like, I mean, it, as a meteorologist, like what better way to see the weather than go fly up there and see it? Well, yeah, yeah that's you can cool. do some storm chasing from uh, from up there. Hey, Alex, it's been great having you on the show today. I learned a ton about wildfire, how uh, NV Energy connects to that, but also the incident meteorologist, the importance of having that meteorologist on the scene with the emergency managers and fire. It's been great to have you on the show. This has been great, guys, and I really appreciate the invite coming on here. And uh, my opinions are my own, not Envy Energies, but I enjoyed being here and talking with you guys. Really good stuff. That was an awesome interview with Alex. I think he <laughs> provided some really interesting insights on wildfire and on energy forecasting and all of the issues around the utilities. For the wildfire stuff, I thought he brought up some really interesting points, you know, to quickly summarize the encroachment of people into the wildland urban interface is a huge factor in wildfires and their impacts on people. That also increases potential ignition sources. You've got the climate change issues. We talked about the warmer nights, the vapor pressure deficit. Forest management issues, that's a big deal. We've gone over a century in some places without natural fire burning, and then just overall ignition sources. And he has a very unique experience of over a decade of forecasting weather for firefighters and working side by side with a fire behavior specialist. So, I mean, I think that's really cool. That's really unique. I hope our listeners really enjoyed that. And I think to have a meteorologist like that who is on the front lines, literally helping direct firefighters where it's going to be worse. You know, the major car fire that he was on, working with that fire behavior specialist, fire behavior analyst to come together, deliver that information that things are going to get really bad, really fast. Using the technology that he has in the field, whether that's, you know, a deployed, what we call deployed tactical terminal to download the information, almost like he was back in the office using communications, whether that's your radio or satellite phone in, in this case, or satellite technology to download that data. You know, one of the things that we didn't talk about, there's a lot of heavy use of drones that are observing some of these uh, wildfires. There's companies out there that are helping communities, helping these fire professionals to observe fire behavior with drones, but also have weather technology on board to, to be able to do that. So really fascinating discussion. I uh, learned a lot about fire weather and you know how fire tornadoes get formed. And I think this is definitely a fascinating discussion that hopefully our listeners get a lot out of. I know we did here. Yeah, I would like our you know younger audience to understand or the junior audience that we have. Hey, there's a lot of options for being a meteorologist. You don't have to just go into the, the weather service. You can go into utilities. Uh, you can go to the Air Force. You can 
you know, going to the commercial sector. There's a lot of different opportunities and we focused recently on federal and some government oriented jobs, but there's a lot of stuff out there. And this was one career path that one meteorologist took. We've got at least dozen other sectors to really get into. There are definitely a lot of areas where weather and climate business is growing. So we'll talk about that next week. The other thing that, you know, Jeff and I have kind of been talking about is getting our audience involved. So at some point uh, down the road, I think we're going to start asking the audience to submit questions so we can help answer them or maybe have a guest on that can help answer those as well. Well, we hope you enjoyed today's Triple Point Podcast. If you liked it, subscribe to our newsletter at triplepointpodcast.com. Give us a shout and a five-star rating on your favorite podcast station and tell your friends about it. Or you can email us at triplepointpodcast at the number 81degrees.com. Until next time, have a great week. All right, well, uh, Jeff, you ready to roll in? Yeah, you're a little hot, just so don't talk so loud. Did you just call me hot? (laughs) You know, we used to call him Maverick, right? Because he looks like Tom Cruise. Okay, finally. Finally, somebody else that agrees with me. Thank (laughs) you. Yep. I agree. When we were in the Air Force, we used to call him Maverick. Like, he was like, oh, man, here he comes. Tom Cruise. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But in a a recent podcast, Jeff decided to call me Goose, though. And, you know, I had to remind him that I'm not Goose. He's Goose and I'm Maverick. (laughs)